0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are going to be discussing the historical existence of Jesus. So we're going to be talking about non-Christian sources and Christian sources for the existence of Jesus. Uh, And so right out the gate, we're going to quote skeptic agnostic Bart Ehrman. He has a book called Did Jesus Exist? He actually spoke at a conference for... I don't know, it was some type of secular humanist uh, conference, and he basically, uh, whenever he was asked about the existence of Jesus, was firm in saying, you look foolish when you deny the historical existence of Jesus. And he has a book called Did Jesus Exist? And it's pretty good. It's all about the subject. He he basically outlines um, the, the case for the historical existence of Jesus. And I mean, if you're reading it from an evangelical perspective, you're going to see where he undermines um, evangelical beliefs, because Bart Ehrman ultimately has a problem with the Odyssey, right? Uh, But the whole point is that he's going against what he calls the mythicists, um, which are those people that insist that Jesus did not exist historically and that he is essentially a copycat of other ancient deities. And Bart Ehrman essentially says, no there's there's no reason to believe that if we base it off of historical evidence. And really the reason why this topic is important is because, well, um, these mythicists are everywhere and I usually like quoting Bart Ehrman, in particular when dealing with them uh, because of his position as an agnostic um, skeptic and critic of the New Testament and if you read his book, Did Jesus exist? That comes out. But regardless, let's go ahead and jump right into it, beginning with a quote from that book itself. He says, Despite the enormous range of opinion, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man, known to be a preacher and teacher, who was crucified, a Roman form of execution, in Jerusalem under the reign of the Roman Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Another quote from his book is, The idea that Jesus did not exist is a modern notion. It has no ancient precedents. It was made up in the 18th century, and one might well call it a modern myth, the myth of the mythical Jesus. So let's talk about historical sources and evidence in brief, because for some reason we, we like to apply like the scientific method to historical evidence, but historical evidence is different because it's not repeatable. It's historical. So, really, whenever it comes to historical sources and evidence, we have, you know, archaeology that is artifacts we find, literary accounts from persons in questions or accounts about a person. So references, quotations, or discussions about. And of course, the more sources, the better. Um, less likely of something being made up um, if there are more sources and they're more near to the date, relatively speaking, to the person in the event in question. And we'll talk about that as well. Uh, the longer the written account is, the better. Um, The more sources that can uh, corroborate a particular event or a person of interest are also important Uh, witnesses that are independent on one another not dependent on each other for all of their information we'll talk about that as well. And, you know, once you get to a certain point in time, then we're looking at photographs and videos. Uh, For example, we can see a video of Churchill or Hitler, and we can see photographs of Abraham Lincoln. We don't have that luxury with ancient historical evidence. Of course, there are some sense in where like on coins, you would have depictions of a particular emperor and things of that nature. And that goes underneath archaeology. But what's interesting is that whenever I've had discussion with people who are in that category of Jesus mythicists on, on the pop level, um, They don't seem to understand how little we have of a lot of people in history, especially ancient history, Uh, but we'll we'll get into that here in a little bit as well. So our sources um, are, in terms of Jesus, are left to explicit written testimonies about Jesus Um, because the archaeological evidence speaks Namely, of the historicity of the New Testament rather than around Jesus himself. For example, we don't have any coins minted of Jesus. It wouldn't make sense that we would, given his position in Palestine. Um, so those findings in archaeology are, are valuable for examining the reliability of the historical accounts found in the Gospels. In fact, Peter J. Williams, in his book, Can We Trust the Gospels? He goes over the names places. He goes over the bodies of water and, and then um, the people who are listed, and how these are things that you would only know if you were a valuable witness who knew what they were talking about. Um, So in terms of Jesus himself, let's quote Bart Ehrman again. He said, There is no archaeological evidence for anyone else living in Palestine in Jesus' day except for the very upper-crust elite aristocrats, who are occasionally mentioned in inscriptions. In fact, we don't have any archaeological remains for any non-aristocratic Jew of the 20s CE, or A.D. Uh, when Jesus would have been an adult, uh, so that's very that's very telling. Uh, so we we shouldn't expect that for someone um, in Jesus's position in history. And what's fascinating about that is really whenever you examine that reality with what we do have, uh, things become a little bit more compelling. So whenever Bart Ehrman compares Jesus with Pontius Pilate. He states, think of everything we do know about the reign of Pontius Pilate as the governor of Judea. We know from the Jewish historian Josephus that Pilate ruled for 10 years between 26 to 36 CE, and it would be easy to argue that he was the single most important figure for Roman Palestine for the entire length of his rule. And what records from that decade do we have from his reign? We have none, nothing at all. I might press this issue further. What archaeological evidence do we have about Pilate's rule in Palestine? Well, we have some coins that were issued during his reign and only one fragmentary inscription discovered in Caesarea, nothing else. And what writings do we have from him? Not a single word. Does that mean he did not exist? No. He is mentioned in several passages in Josephus and in the writings of Philo and in the Gospels. He certainly existed even though, like Jesus, we have no records from his day or writings from his hand. What is more striking is that we have far more information about Pilate than any other governor of Judea in Roman times. It is also worth pointing out that Pilate is mentioned only in passing in the writing of one Roman historian, Tacitus, who does name him. Moreover, that happens to be the same passage that refers to Jesus. So that's an interesting parallel to really consider. And we can move into our first detour. And our first detour is a source that is often used uh, for the existence of Jesus, but one that isn't really helpful, and that is rabbinic tradition. Uh, rabbinic tradition is often cited as evidence for the historicity of Jesus, but it's not ideal for a number of reasons. I'm going to lean on the work of Paola Eddy and Gregory Boyd, uh, and this is the Jesus Legend: A Case for the Historical Reliability of the Synoptic Jesus Tradition. Uh, they summarize the issue with these sources and pointing out that the earliest rabbinic sources date from the late second to third century. While there's reason to believe that some of these were written sources have an early precedent with tradition, it's difficult to validate the claims or date them. Uh, Further, we find that the rabbinic claims are polemical. They argue against Jesus, uh, which is indicative of the tensions between Christians and Jews, uh, thus also showing that this is more of a reactionary writing, more so than a historical writing. So the lack of ability to verify the claims in regards to their timeline and the polemics could be more telling about the current historical climate well beyond the time frame around Jesus's life himself. Now it can tell us that there's obviously a Christian community and that there's a tradition that they're drawing from historical sources that they're drawing from to make their critiques, but uh, they're still kind of iffy because of where they're placed. Additionally, In many of the citations, it is not clear whether or not they are even referring to Jesus to begin with. All it really tells us in terms of the historical existence of Jesus positively is that when Jesus is in view, he is just assumed to have existed. Hopefully that made sense. Let's let's talk about ancient sources on Jesus that are not Christian. Let me make sure I got that right. Um... Yeah, so we're going to talk about non-Christian sources first, and then we will talk about the Gospels as historical witnesses. And that's where I think things get a little bit more interesting. Um, But I'll I'll probably make some comments that aren't necessarily related to this topic as we read through them, because they're just observations. Uh, But let's get into Suetonius um, between 70 AD and 160 He was a Roman historian and a court official under the Emperor Hadrian. His work, Lives of the Caesars, was published around AD 115 uh, through 120. And it's his exposition on Claudius, the emperor of Rome in the first century, that is of interest to us. And it's the deified Claudius in uh, 25.4, he states, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, he expelled them from Rome. So what's interesting here is that we have um, Claudius expelling Jews from Rome because of Christus. And uh, some have pointed out that this event parallels what we find with Luke's work in Acts 18.2. And much has been said about the use of Christus when the Latin word for Christ is Christus. I'm trying to enunciate a little bit oddly so you can kind of fit that. Uh, Basically, it's spelled like crest, U.S., opposed to Christ-us. And because of that difference in spelling, there's been discussions about whether or not this is a spelling mistake or a spelling variant or a different referent altogether or a transliteration. And then there's another theory that Crestus was actually a popular name uh, that was familiar enough that Suetonius spelt it because of its familiarity, not um, distinguishing between Crestus and Christus. Uh, Marvin Pate um, and... Uh, 40 questions about the historical Jesus states, many interpreters of the statement rightly, we believe, reconstruct the episode thusly. Jewish Christians in Rome presented Jesus as the Messiah to non-Christian Jews, which resulted in a flurry of debate between the two groups. Claudius, who would not have known the difference between a Christian Jews and non-Christian Jews, solved the problem by issuing an edict expelling the whole lot of Jews from Rome in AD 49. As it stands, Suetonius' statement documents two facts about Jesus. Uh, Firstly, that he was a historical person, and secondly, that he was thought by his followers to be the Messiah. Now, Pate interacts with those who disagree with this assessment, and he summarizes those disagreements here. He says the supporters of the Jesus legend or myths, that is the Jesus mythicist that we were discussing earlier, disagree with these conclusions. They offer two counters, and the first one is that Linking Crestus with Christ is pure speculation. Rather than Christus being Christ, he was simply a Jewish agitator with a common name, and that he had no association with Christianity. And then second, even if the reference is to Christ, it is no doubt dependent upon Christian hearsay, not reality. Um, Pate continues saying, but these arguments are not convincing. Regarding the first, it is significant that Crestus was a common name among Gentiles, but never used by Jews, so far as we know. At the same time, one can easily understand Suetonius mistaking a Jewish title, Christ, he was unfamiliar with for the common Greek name, and thus amending it to Crestus. Second, a Roman historian of the stature of Suetonius, who we know had access to Roman libraries and archives, would not pass on hearsay from a discredited minor religious sect. Moreover, since Suetonius is recounting an edict from a Roman emperor, It is no doubt contained in official court documents. Third, as a matter of confirmation, it is telling that Luke reports the same edict as having an impact upon Aquila and Priscilla to Jewish Christians who left Rome at the very time and resettled in Corinth. And that's in Acts 18.2. And he concludes with saying that those who interpret Suetonius' statement above as indicating that Jesus was a real person, um, whom his followers considered to be the Christ, seems to be the best reading. Uh, So comparing Suetonius with Acts that we've already mentioned, we have reason to believe that Christ is in view here. However, while the account of Acts is verified, it verifies Luke's testimony of these events. This is not a strong witness for Jesus himself as it is implied. Uh, And that's where I will grant Bart Ehrman and skeptics a little bit more room. I don't think that Suetonius is a very strong witness for the historical existence of Jesus, but rather the event recorded in Acts. So this is especially so given the ascension of Christ, which occurred several years prior to this event. So instead, we do find support for Luke's testimony and um, uh, I guess giving him credit as a credible source overall. Uh, It's a piece of the puzzle in terms of that uh, angle. And there's also this notion that there were obviously Christians present in Rome during the reign of Claudius. So that is significant for understanding the early church um, as well. So let's look at Pliny the Younger, and we're, he's dated to around 61, 62 to 113 AD. Pliny the Younger was the nephew of the famous Pliny the Elder, and he was the governor of Bithynia in northwestern Asia Minor, that is known as Turkey today, in the early 2nd century. Pliny is known for his letters that were written to the Roman Emperor Trajan seeking advice for governing his province. Now, our interest here is one of his writings in 1096 where Pliny asks Trajan whether or not he ought to continue punishing Christians who refuse to renounce their faith. Um, So he says, they, that is the former Christians, assured me, and so he's speaking to former Christians, they, the former Christians, assured me that the sum total of their error consisted in the fact that they regularly assembled on a certain day before daybreak. They recited a hymn antiphonally to Christus, as if to a god, and bound themselves with an oath not to commit any crime, but to abstain from theft, robbery, adultery, breach of faith, embezzlement of property entrusted to them. After this, it was their custom to separate and then to come together again to partake of a meal, but of an ordinary innocent one. So there's a few things of interest here. Um, First off, um, it tells us that Christians were worshiping someone named Christ in the early 2nd century as if he were a god. Second, Pliny the Younger appears to assume, along with the Christians, he integrated, that Jesus was a historical person, though he accounts that these Christians treat this man as if he were a god. Now, while this provides us with some significant information and adds to the evidence for the historical Jesus, it is still limited in its helpfulness. And what I find most fascinating about this text is actually um, in terms of historical theology. In discussing with Arians who deny the full deity of Christ and that Jesus is the first created creature of God, they'll often appeal to church history and say, well, the earliest Christians did not worship Jesus. Uh, and of course, they'll appeal to the New, the New Testament, so you have to do exegesis to demonstrate it. But sometimes they'll appeal to church history. Well, what's interesting here is that this is a writing uh, from very early on stating that Christians were worshiping Christ as if to a God, and certainly they knew what worshiping to a God looked like. Uh, And so this counters the historical claims of Arians in some degree or another, that uh, early Christians did not worship Jesus, uh, which is a point for the Trinitarian, if we're keeping score, which I think we are. Anyway, so Tacitus is another one. Um, We're looking at 55 to 117 AD. And Tacitus was a leader in Asia for two years, and he wrote the works um, Annals and the Histories, with the former discussing the period between Augustus through Nero. Uh, Tacitus is typically understood to be one of the greatest Roman historians, and his work, the Annals, is considered to be one of our best sources about this period in question. So Tacitus speaks to the fire in Rome, if you don't know the Great Fire in Rome, uh, that occurred in AD 64 that uh, occurred underneath Emperor Nero. It's very famous. Most people know about it, uh, but the Christians were blamed and he says, therefore to stop the rumor that the burning of Rome had taken place by order. Nero substituted as culprits and punished in the utmost refinements of cruelty. A class of men, hang on, lost my spot here, loads for their vices whom the crowd called Christians, Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procreator Pontius Pilate, and the superstition was checked for a moment. But in the capital where um, all things horrible and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Um, so to summarize the value of this passage, we'll quote Pate again. He says, Taking at face value, Tacitus' statement says four things about the historical Jesus. First, it confirms that the time of Jesus' execution was during the reign of Caesar Tiberius in 14 to 37, and during Pilate's governorship over Judea in AD 26 through 36. Second, the statement confirms that Jesus' death was by execution, order of the Roman governor, Third, it claims that the Christian movement was temporarily suppressed but broke out even again in Rome. Fourth, uh, related to the last comment, Tacitus' report demonstrates that in the span of a mere three decades since the time of Tiberius and Pilate to Nero, the Christian movement had grown to the point that it could be made a plausible scapegoat for the Roman emperor. So the, the difficulty here is that the sources of Tacitus are unknown. And this is written roughly 85 years post-crucifixion. And so it is a corroboration um, of these events as historical evidence, but there are a few objections to counter the validity of the text that we will talk about here. So first off, it is claimed that this could be an interjection or interpolation by Christians, that it was inserted by Christians. But this is easily rejected in the fact that Tacitus is not favorable towards Christians in his description of Christians. And it's hard to believe that a Christian would insert statements about Christians saying that they're shameful, hated, superstitious, uh, who have been punished justifiably. So it's hard to conceive that other Christians would give these designations to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, second, it is stated that because Tacitus calls Pilate a um, procurator, Rather than a prefect, the account must be unreliable. Now, it is true that we have an ancient inscription that calls Pilate um, a prefect, but it's been argued that Tacitus could have been anachronistic for the sake of clarity, on purpose, Uh, basically because in his own day, the title of uh, procurator was used instead of prefect, he used it there. Um, But it's also been pointed out that the terms were fluid. Philo and Josephus, for example, both call Pilate a procurator while the latter uses them interchangeably in his work. And you see that again in um, Philo and Jewish War, 2.9 to 169 for Josephus. Uh, and then Philo is in 38. Uh, so those two objections are dealt with pretty easily. And the last objection to this text is that because Tacitus uses the term Christus or Christ Messiah, um, this must... Uh, rely on myths rather than history that's the claim to this point pate is helpful again um, and he says regarding the objection that tacitus was relying on christian mythology uh, we may say three things one tacitus is generally considered to have been too reliable a historian to base his official report on superstitious religion Uh, that was considered a fringe group second by the 2nd century, the time of Tacitus' writing, Christ and Jesus were used interchangeably. And third, Tacitus uses the name Christ, not Jesus, because he is explaining the origin of the name Christians, uh, which we uh, indicate in the immediate context of Tacitus. So let's talk about Josephus. Um, yeah, we'll talk about Josephus, and then we'll wrap up this episode and move into the Gospels in the next episode. Now, we've talked about Josephus quite a bit, especially given our episode on the Apocrypha, uh, but Josephus was a uh, Jewish historian from 37 to 100 who is an important figure in ancient Judaism, particularly when it comes to the historical um, writings of that era. In fact, his writings are a primary source regarding the life and history of Palestine when it comes to the first century in his work, Jewish Wars, he is personally involved with some of the events actually mentioned. For our purposes here today, our interest um, deals with the two citations and antiquities of the Jews uh, because they are pertaining to Jesus. Now, this work attempts to speak to the Romans and explain the Jewish people and their beliefs, and it's often a crucial work for understanding the groups that we know of, um, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Comron Community. Um, so working backwards, because uh it, it's easier to work backwards because of the nature of these quotations. We're gonna look at antiquities uh 29.1, 20.9.1. And in this text, Josephus points out that the high priest at the time um unlawfully put to death James, who Josephus calls the brother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So objections. To these references are often directed towards two things. First, the use of the term Messiah, since Josephus doesn't have a high view of those who claim to be the Messiah. And then there's a negative perspective on the high priest, who is also spoken of in positive terms elsewhere. So dealing with the first objection, uh, Josephus actually mentions a person named Jesus more than 20 times in his works. In fact, there's one in this immediate context, Jesus, the son of Demanus. Uh, so Eddie and Boyd state, and this is Eddie and Boyd and uh, the Jesus legend, a case for the historical reliability of the synoptic gospels. Uh, they state, it seems Josephus simply knew that the brother of James was called Christ by his followers and so distinguished him from the other person's name, Jesus, he had already mentioned. Uh, we don't really think of it, but Jesus was a pretty popular name. Uh, and in fact, whenever you look at textual criticism, you'll find that Barabbas, who was released by Pilate, Uh, and variants is called Jesus Barabbas. Uh, And there's also another Jesus in Acts. So there's good reason for that particular specification by Josephus, uh, because people would know who he was speaking about. Uh, Further, Josephus does not call Jesus the Christ, but instead points out that it is this Jesus who was called the Christ. Uh, And so it's likely for this purpose, he, he was simply better identifying James. He wasn't necessarily saying, I believe that this man is the Messiah, that he turned into a Christian or something. Um, because it is actually James, Jesus's brother, who's at the center of the discussion here. Now, in terms of uh, Josephus's disposition towards the high priest, uh, this shift is consistent with his general shift in attitude towards the religious and political leadership uh, between his two works anyway, just uh, the Jewish wars and antiquities. And that is also attested by um, Meyer in the marginal Jew 158. So what is significant about this passage is that it not only points to the history of Jesus indirectly, but it also uh, speaks to him directly by speaking to the fact that he has a brother. Uh, so James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, so this reality, of course, is confirmed in Acts 15 and in Paul in Galatians 1.19. In fact, if you want to know, I think, at least this is from my analysis, it seems like Bart Ehrman likes this point a lot. He used it in a couple of discussions. Uh, but essentially, because Paul writes about James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul's historicity cannot be doubted. This is very significant because Paul knew and was familiar with the brother of Jesus. Um, In other words, uh, non-existent individuals do not have family. So whether one takes the position that James is the stepbrother, cousin, um, a child conceived after Jesus, it's ultimately inconsequential. I know that we're all itching to know, you know, is this Is this a blood-related brother or stepbrother, cousin, etc.? But that's really ultimately inconsequential. The point is that Jesus had a brother, and this brother is noted by Paul and by Josephus, and Jesus is connected to him. Now, saving the whopper for last, the the more disputable um, quotation from Josephus is actually in Antiquities 18.63, and the text reads as follows. About the time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he is one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of people who accept the truth gladly. He went over many Jews and many of the Greeks, and he was the Messiah. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them, restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these things and countless other marvelous things about him, and the tribe of the Christians so-called after him has still to this day not disappeared. Now, anyone who knows something about Josephus can see what the problem is. Josephus, as far as we know, did not die a Christian. So this passage is disputed because of several lines such as, um, if indeed one ought to call him a man... Uh, he was the Messiah. He appeared to them on the third day, restored to life. Uh, the prophets of God have prophesied about these things and the marvelous things. Um, these things would not have been said by a Jew who was not converted to Christianity, uh, which is confirmed by Origen. Now, Eusebius in his church history um, is the first one to mention this citation, while others who were familiar with Josephus's work never referred to this passage. So the two predominant positions on this passage is that A, this is entirely a Christian forgery, or B, it contains Christian insertions into an otherwise authentic report of Jesus. The view most often held is that the likely answer is that these positive affirmations of Jesus are indeed Christian interjections into the text, not that the entire passage is a Christian forgery. Uh, Quoting Bart Ehrman here, It needs to be remembered that Josephus, by his own admission, was something of a turncoat in the war with Rome. This is how most Jews throughout history have remembered him. Among his own people, he was not a beloved author read throughout the ages. In fact, his writings were transmitted in the Middle Ages, not by Jews, but by Christians. This shows how we can explain the extraordinary Christian claims about Jesus in the passage. When Christian scribes copied the text, they added a few words here and there to make sure that the reader would get the point. This is that Jesus, the superhuman Messiah raised from the dead, as the scriptures predicted. The big question is whether a Christian scribe or scribes simply added a few choice Christian additions to this passage, or whether the entire thing was produced by a Christian and inserted into an appropriate place in Josephus's antiquities. The majority of scholars of early Judaism and experts on Josephus think that it was the former, that one or more Christian scribes touched up the passage a bit. So many scholars such as Bart Ehrman have noted that if you take out these Christian positive affirmations from Josephus's text, that it is indeed a viable text that you could expect from a Jewish historian. So let's read it without those uh, interjections. Quote, at this time, there appeared Jesus, a wise man, who was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure, and he gained a great many following of Jews and among many of Greek origin. When Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. So this version of this passage is confirmed as well in Arabic manuscripts of Josephus written in the 10th century by a historian named Agapius. I think that's how you say it. Additionally, this version would be appropriate for a non-Christian Jew. Um, Paul Meyer points out that the wholesale fabrication of the passage is hardly tenable. He says, quote, Since the passage occurs in all Greek manuscripts of Josephus and the undisputed references to Jesus and 20.200 would doubtless supplied more identifying material if this were the first mention of Jesus. Now, if you didn't catch what Paul is saying here, he's saying that in that quotation that we talked about earlier about James, the, the brother of Jesus, there would have been more information if that was the first mention of Jesus. With this passage, there's no reason to add more to that later passage. Additionally, this passage is found in all of our manuscripts. So the question is, why is Eusebius the first one to mention it? Well, Bart Ehrman points out that there's nothing new in Josephus's original writing that would be used by early Christians, because all that stuff was found in the gospel traditions. Pape points out uh, that there's also a generally negative tone of Josephus regarding Jesus, uh, which led to individuals such as Jerome citing Josephus over 90 times, yet not on this particular topic. So that's going to wrap up our first discussion on the historical existence of Jesus. Next, we will discuss uh, the Gospels as a historical witness, and we'll talk a little bit about that, and we'll see how far we get um, before going into the great myth of myths about Jesus as a copycat deity. So God bless you all, and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.